And so now let's turn to his word. Uh, We'll be looking at today's scripture. Uh, We'll be from Ephesians 2, starting in verse 11 through verse 16, which is on the back of your worship bulletin. Let me read this for us. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. He has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. The word of the Lord. So last week, if you were here with us, something that we saw in the beginning portion of the uh, book of Ephesians was that much of what God does, he does for the praise of his glory, that God desires in all that he does for himself to be made known and to be made great. Uh, And something that we have been considering is how that idea then impacts the church. And specifically us as Redeemer East Harlem, what does that mean? That if God is working in us, that if God is working through us, both personally and corporately as a church, what then does it mean for us, practically speaking? How then do we live in such a way and do we do church in such a way that God is the one who is ultimately glorified and is lifted up? Now, what we saw and what we'll be looking at um, over uh, this week and the next coming weeks is pretty much Paul's great theological treatise on what God has done through the person and work of Jesus. Uh, And what we've considered is that God has done much uh, in us personally, but that as he does it in us together, he establishes his church. And here in our passage in Ephesians 2, Uh, Paul here explains the great significance of what has taken place in God establishing his church. And he actually makes some really startling statements about how this now, uh, now what ought to happen now that Christ has accomplished what he has accomplished. And he does this by describing the relationship between the Jews and the Gentiles. And that's what we want to draw out a bit today. Uh, Of course, the Jews being the people of God in Israel, and then the Gentiles being everybody else, okay? And so this relationship now that Paul describes between the Jews and the Gentiles, uh, it cannot be overstated how important it is that we see why it matters that they are now drawn together as one people. And what Paul unpacks in these verses, I think, in my opinion, is one of the most important Uh, the most powerful apologetics, uh, rationales for why the Christian faith is true. 
Here in this passage, I see that the uniqueness of what the church was and what the church is now is actually one of the uh, most important aspects of why the Christian faith is true amongst all other ideas about God or philosophies. I realize that's a big claim, so let's jump into it and see if I can show you that to be the case. Uh, And I want to do that by considering three things in particular from this passage. Uh, Number one, I want to consider the the promises that God is making here in this passage to the uh, nation of Israel. It's important to understand what's going on there. Uh, And then the second thing I want to see is why God chose Israel to be his covenant people and why he made covenant promises to them. Uh, And then finally, why then does it matter that, that the Gentiles were included in those promises? Okay, so what are those covenant promises? Why Israel for those covenant promises? And then why it matters for the Gentiles to be included. Uh, So the first thing, what are the promises made to Israel? The very first thing that Paul does here in this section of Ephesians 2 is that Paul makes clear that God has made promises to the Jewish people, that he has made promises to Israel. And we see this all throughout the Old Testament. I mean, this is, is essentially what the Old Testament is. That over and over again, God is affirming this covenant relationship that he has with them. Uh, And one of the first times that we see it is the relationship and covenant promises that God has with Abraham. Uh, For example, in in Genesis 17, he tells Abraham that he's going to establish a covenant with Abraham and all of Abraham's descendants, who would eventually be the Jewish people, the nation of Israel. And God promises that Abraham would be the father of this great nation, and that through that great nation, the entire world would be blessed. That God was going to bless them, he was going to protect them, he was going to raise them up, that he was going to rescue them and redeem them, that he would provide for them, that they would be called his. In Exodus 6, he says that he would take them as his people and that he would be their God and this is essentially, again, what the whole Old Testament is describing, these covenant relation, this covenant relationship and this promise. And if you wanted to boil down the Old Testament into just a few statements, it would be this, that God makes promises, his people rebel against those promises, God then brings judgment as a result of that rebellion, but then as a result of repentance, God restores his people, keeping his covenant promises. That's the whole Old Testament in a nutshell. God is always faithful to his promises. But the second question I want to consider, though, is why Israel? Of all the peoples of the world, why did God make covenant promises with Israel? Well, there's a few different occasions where God reveals why. And one of the more significant ones, I think, is in Deuteronomy 7, where it says this, uh, God says that it was not because... They were many in number, but rather he chose them because they were few in number. That's interesting. God didn't choose them because they were strong. He chose them because they were weak. God chooses Israel because they were the lowliest of people. And God knew that if he came to use the weak, to give them strength, then back to what we looked at last week, it would be him who ultimately receives glory for anything that happens through this people. Isaiah 49, God says that to to, uh, the nation of Israel, that you are my servants, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. He made them great so that he would receive glory. Comes back to the major theme 
of what, I, of what we see in the book of Ephesians broadly. And it's interesting to me that God chose Israel not because they were great, but, per, but precisely because they weren't. And this is how God so often works. I mean, think back even to, um, to some of the, the great uh, uh, people of the Old Testament that we know. Abraham, for example. Abraham was a wealthy man, and yet God asks Abraham to leave all of his wealth behind to follow him so that he could use Abraham in great ways. Uh, he calls a shepherd boy, someone no one would think anything of, David, to be the great king of Israel. I mean, even consider Jesus. I mean, Jesus is born in obscurity. He becomes a refugee. He lives the life of a blue-collar worker. He spends much of his ministry with the poor and with the sick, and then he dies the death of a criminal. I mean, this is how God works over and over again by using the lowly, by using the humble, by using the unseen. This is why he chooses Israel. Now, I do want to pause there for a second and draw a couple things out about that idea. Because consider this. I mentioned before that one of the cycles that Israel ended up in was that they often rebelled against God's covenant promises. Um, and they often then found themselves under judgment as a result of their rebellion against him because they forgot where they came from. Now, this is not insignificance. The reason why judgment was almost always brought against Israel was because they got too comfortable with power and control as God raised them up, as God gave them strength. They forgot that it was God's grace that had raised them up, and forgetting this ended up producing an enormous amount of pride and rebellion in them. And no matter who you are, all of us have a desire at times for power and control, and as a result, that will, be, that will mean inevitably that we will, we will reject God's grace because we no longer assume that we need it. I mean, this is something that is common to everyone. Again, think about these great quote-unquote heroes of the faith from the Old Testament. You have, in the case of Abraham, one whom God had pro promised glorious blessings to him and to his offspring. Abraham, however, with a desire to control those promises, it ended up resulting in him raping a slave in order to control God's promises to give him a son. He got far too comfortable with attempting to control. I mean, consider King David, again, one whom God had promised glorious things to both him and to his descendants. David used his power to take another man's wife and then have that man murdered. I mean, consider now that the nation of Israel God's chosen people, judgment was brought on them, according to the prophets like Amos and Hosea, because there were a couple of reasons. One reason was that idolatry had now existed in the land of Israel because they wanted a God that they could control and exploit. That was one reason. And another reason why judgment, judgment was brought on them is because of the injustices 
that were rampant throughout the land because too many sought to consolidate power and resources. They forgot why God had chosen them. And the point of this just being simply that a true and abiding faith in the God of Israel requires a constant posture of humility before God's grace. Power so often corrupts and causes idolatrous pride. As scripture tells us that God resists the arrogance, but he gives grace to the humble. And that's in the most difficult places sometimes, and we may know this to be true, the most difficult places to find humble people is often at the centers of power, which is why so often God tends to work at the margins with the weak, with the unseen, because at the margins, that is where God is most glorified. At the centers of power, so often people forget that God is the one who ought to be glorified. And so often, God then becomes nothing more than a tool for personal gain. He chose Israel not because they were great, but precisely because they weren't. You know, as I think about that fact, it's also interesting to me that this was not just a problem for the people of Israel, God's people, the Jewish people. It wasn't just them that had forgotten God's grace. This has actually historically been a serious issue for the New Testament church as well. Idolatry and lust for power has infected the church. It always has been there. The church, whenever the church has attempted to consolidate power, we see the same kinds of results. Corruption becomes pervasive, uh, or power rather, becomes pervasive and causes people to pursue that which is self-glorifying instead of God-glorifying. And just to give you some examples of what I mean within the church, over and over again we've seen that happen. For example, you know, when the church became the tool of the state to drive the injustices that we see historically with uh, colonialism and the nationalistic fervor that caused the church to be the arm of the state to go literally around the world to conquer people in unjust ways. That was an example of the church being co-opted, being obsessed with power. Another, within our own country, the church was the one that provided much of the rationale that caused injustices against, for example, the native people of this land. Things like manifest destiny were theological uh, ideas that drove us to do such things. It was driven by greed, this desire for power. The church, and even some of the heroes of the church, even justified the enslavement of African peoples to work that stolen land, again, out of this lust for power, out of this lust for control. The church often provided justification for the segregating of Christians of different quote-unquote races so that even now today, the words of Martin Luther King Jr. are still as true as ever that 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings are the most segregated hour of our nation that still is the case. And even today, now, the church 
is so easily co-opted and used as a tool by political parties seeking power. The church has fallen victim time and time again to the same temptations that got Israel exiled. It's this obsession with power. But time and time again, we see that God chooses to work amongst those who are unseen, the unknown, that he might be glorified, not in the centers of power, which is why the church even today grows in the places that it grows. You know, there's much talk uh, now about how the church is in decline. Uh, And maybe in some ways, in some places, the church is in decline, but broadly speaking, that's not true at all. The church is actually not in decline at all. The church has only gone into decline in the places where the church was corrupted by power. Let me give you an example of what I mean by that. Uh, Christian Europe, for years, held all the religious power and used that power so often for its own personal gain. That church is all but dead now. In the U.S., in the Western church broadly, the white Western church, both conservative and liberal, that church is certainly in decline because for generations it held all the power and now it is dying. But do you know where the church is not declining but thriving? At the margins. The church is thriving in places where people too often were unseen and unnoticed. The church is growing rapidly in minority communities within our own country. The church is spreading like wildfire in Central and South America, places where the church thought were once pagan lands. That is now becoming where Christianity grows. By 2050, it is estimated that Africa will now be the new center, will then be the new center of global Christianity. Again, a land that so often we'd viewed as this pagan land that needed to be saved in many of our lifetimes, it will be the new center of global Christianity. In China a place where for years the state has tried to actively squash the church. I was just reading by estimates, uh, by current, some current estimates, by 2050, the majority of China will be Christian in a place where the church is actively trying to, or the, the state is actively trying to repress the church. Why? It's because God works at the margins. And God makes covenant promises with Israel, not because they were great, but because they were at the margins. This is where God is most glorified. That, though, gets me now to the last question, which was kind of the point of all of this. Why, then, does it matter that the Gentiles were included in this promise, in these promises? There's probably a lot of different things that could be said, but I want to draw out one particular verse from the passage, verse 14. Uh, let Let me reread that for us. It says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. It's interesting, that passage. Now, as I mentioned before, Leading up to this point, Paul has unpacked in no uncertain terms the great depths of Christ's work and what God through Christ has accomplished. 
In Ephesians 1, he speaks of forgiveness and redemption and God's lavish grace. In chapter 2, uh, earlier in the chapter, he speaks of how we were once dead, but now we have been uh, given new life. Uh, later on in the chapter, he speaks of how it's not by our own works, but that it's by God's grace through faith. He goes on to say that we are God's workmanship. There's just all this amazing truth that is being unpacked here. And here's what I find to be really interesting. And it just struck me as I was, as I was uh, studying this passage again. After all this great theological truth about what God has done in Christ, the very first thing that Paul addresses about how significant this work is, is that he speaks of how the Gentiles are now included. That there is now this relationship between Israel and Gentiles. That's the first thing that he, he mentions. That has to be significant then in Paul's mind. That there is now this relationship that the dividing walls have been torn down. And the reason why this is so important to see is because of the great divisions that existed between both the Jews and the Gentiles. There were ceremonies and customs and laws that kept Jews and Gentiles from being able to fellowship with one another. Even Gentiles who would have essentially converted to the Jewish faith, they would have been, uh, as you're reading through the New Testament, if you ever see that they, uh, a Gentile was a God-fearer, that was a way of saying that they were a converted Gentile who now believed in the God of Israel. But even though they had converted, they weren't even allowed to worship together. And when there was temple worship, they were kept outside. They weren't allowed inside. But what Paul is saying here is that that dividing wall that kept them from fellowship has been torn down so that now they might be one in Christ. And the power of that is that the racial and ethnic and nationalistic and economic distinctions that may have kept them separate are now superseded by the work of the cross. And this was so radical for both the Jews and the Gentiles, it was the first thing that Paul addresses coming out of this great theological treatise that he gives. And I hope you see the implications of that for us even today. Because one of the primary testaments of the power of the gospel ought to be the unity that occurs in the midst of difference for those who are in Christ. This is a powerful testament that in my understanding, no one else can claim at the, at the same level that the Christian faith can claim. You know, there's a lot of really great and important arguments for why the Christian faith is true. You have arguments like the historicity of the resurrection. You have arguments for the trustworthiness of the biblical narrative. But for me, personally, the way that the gospel applies to all cultures, breaking down all barriers, that's one of the most powerful apologetics for why the Christian faith is true. How different peoples come together in unity under Christ. Now, on a, on a personal level, I find this to be pretty, um, um, pretty amazing because from my own uh, experience in my own family background, I come from a, a family 
that is uh, very diverse ethnically and culturally. Uh, I joke that that is one of the reasons why I'm so ethnically ambiguous. Uh, if you don't know me, you can't really pin me as any one particular thing, uh, mostly because my parents and my grandparents and my great-grandparents really liked to mix it up ethnically. Uh, they didn't like to stay in one particular group. So I've experienced it personally, how the gospel has applied to a variety of different cultures and ethnicities. Uh, but I was also uh, an intercultural studies major in college and in grad school, and so I've studied this broadly as well to try to get outside of my own personal experience. And here's what I've landed on. Personally, and both academically, the applicability of the gospel to all peoples and cultures is completely unprecedented in any other religion or philosophy. I mean, it's a powerful affirmation of what the gospel does. The Christian church, capital C, is the most diverse institution that the world has ever known. There are billions of people from every tribe and every tongue right now doing the same thing that we're doing lifting up the name of Jesus. And I have not seen or studied another religion or philosophy or worldview that comes close to this kind of unity. Just to give you some examples. Islam, which of course is the second largest religion of the world, is almost entirely centered around the Middle East or around Middle Eastern culture. So much so that knowing Arabic is crucial to understanding the faith broadly. It's culturally captive. Hinduism, my own family has a, uh, a, a lineage uh, from India in Hinduism. It's almost entirely centered around India and the surrounding nations. It has been that way for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, stayed centered there. Buddhism, another huge global religion, is still almost entirely centered around Southern Asia. The reason why this matters is that Christianity, unlike other major world religions, is not culturally captive. Even to consider non-religions like humanism and atheism, it's almost entirely centered in the West. You do not find humanists and atheists of the kind that we think of outside of Western contexts. And actually, to get a little bit more provocative, it's almost entirely amongst white men as well, statistically. It's extremely culturally captive. But Christianity is not tied to any one culture or people group or ethnicity. It is a religion that started in the Middle East, moved its center to Europe, moved across to the West, and is now is being centered in places that were once thought to be unchristian, like South, Southern and South, uh, Central and South America, in Asia, and in Africa. This is a powerful testament of what the gospel does. And when I've made this case to people, um, a case that I have attempted to make on numerous occasions, uh, I do usually get some pushback on this idea. And we'll just take Africa as an example, some pushback that I get on this idea. Simply this, that isn't Africa only Christian because of European colonialism? Seems like a natural question to ask. Uh, and the answer is no, that's actually not the case at all, and I want to maybe give you a few reasons why. Uh, first thing, to assume that Africa is only Christian uh, because of colonialism disregards the Christianity that has existed in Africa for hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, the most enduring church in the world, one of the most anyway, 
is the Ethiopian church. It was there. You can read about the inception of it in the book of Acts. It is still in existence today. And it, has, it, has, it was there a thousand years before colonial powers ever entered into Europe. But another, uh, another thing worth considering is that even though in some places in Africa, Christianity came as the result of colonialism, this actually proves my point, it wasn't until colonialism left that Christianity, or colonial powers left rather, that Christianity really spread. Um, Laman Sane, who is a professor at Yale and also from Gambia, uh, he wrote a book called Whose Religion is Christianity? And in that book, he shows how colonialism uh, was a stumbling block that once removed created an enormous expansion of the faith throughout the continent. And he gave three reasons in particular as to why that took place. The first one that he said was that uh, when European missionaries and colonial powers left, uh, the Bible translations were finally made in the African language, or expanded rather, in the African languages and then disseminated throughout uh, the land. So that was one thing that happened. A second thing that happened is that after colonial powers left uh, Africa, the African people now had a greater agency. And so Africans stepped forward without the disadvantage of foreign compromise. But here's the, the third one. This is what's the most interesting to me. Is that Christianity thrived in Africa in the places where indigenous religion had remained strong even through colonialism. And the reason why that mattered is because the indigenous people, when they finally heard the gospel, they were able to hear it for what it was, which was a message from God, not a message from colonizers. And in other words, the African explosion of Christianity was not because of colonial powers, but rather it was because the gospel was interwoven into the cultural fabric of the African peoples. Their languages, their customs, their cultures were honored. The gospel is a message that is not captive to any one culture or people group. Rather, it breaks down those barriers so that now Jews and Gentiles can worship together. So that now European Americans and African Americans can worship together. So that now the poor and the wealthy, the native-born Harlemite and the gentrifier can now come together and worship. This is the power of the cross. It breaks down those dividing walls. There is nothing else like it. Now, I do need to say one thing. If you know me, uh, you also know that I'm no fan of uh, kumbaya, diverse worship, uh, because there are actually deep injustices and idolatry and sin that have caused the divide in the church. Uh, pervasive racism and classism and xenophobia continue to be an affront to the gospel of Christ. Uh, this is probably most clearly seen um, even now in the state of today's church, nationalistic pride and lust for power and control continue to perpetuate a deeply concerning compromise in the American church. Um, we're going to get there and we're going to call that stuff out. Be prepared because that will come in coming weeks. But even though all that's true, that still does not change the fact that the power that the gospel has is to do just this, to break down 
dividing walls when together people from different tribes, different tongues submit themselves to Christ. Now let's close with this, conclude with this, because there's, there's a couple of reasons why I'm drawing all of this out. My hope and my prayer uh, is that Redeemer East Harlem would remember the beauty of the cross, that beauty being that it tears down the dividing walls of hostility that maybe were once embraced, and that where those dividing walls exist, it is because in some way the church has been co-opted and has become more concerned about some form of power and control. And so may our church reflect that unity, even in the midst of diversity. And the second thing, though, would be this, is that we as a church, Redeemer East Harlem, would be a church where Christ is, which is with those who are on the margins, those who, we might, who might otherwise be excluded, that we be a church that sees who God sees, loves who God loves, and is where God is working, which again is so often not at the centers of power, but on the margins. And so I ask you to, to walk away with this on a personal level. Do you trust that the gospel does actually break down those dividing walls? Do you trust this gospel of grace that I've described? Because if, if you don't, the one thing I would want you to know is that trusting that gospel of grace actually does one really important thing for you personally, is that it tears down the dividing wall that exists between you and God. I mean, as a result of our sin, which we addressed earlier, there is this dividing wall, but God in his grace breaks down that dividing wall so that we are now invited to know him and to love him and experience him as we trust in Jesus. But for those of us that maybe do, maybe you do trust in this gospel of grace. There are two groups of people that I want to uh, talk to. If you trust this gospel of grace and you feel yourself to be on the margin, maybe you feel as though you are unseen and unknown and unheard, I want you to know and be affirmed and reminded that God knows you. He sees you, that you are a child of God and to embrace what it means to be loved by the creator of all things. And I pray that we as a church might be a church where you no longer feel like you are on the margin, but rather brought into a, a family, a community. But the other thing is for those of you who maybe you recognize that you're not on the margin. Maybe you recognize that you are someone that is at that center of power in some way. I want you to also know that you are also a child of God, and that God has given you whatever power or authority you might have, not for your good, but for the good of others, for his glory. I mean, why did God lift up Israel? He lifted them up so that they would bless the world. It was not for them, it was for the world, and when it became about them, they were corrupted. And so use whatever power, authority you may have for the good of others. And this is the last thing I'll say, is do we desire to be a part of a church that, do, that seeks to do the hard work of diversity, of unity in diversity, and also standing with people on the margins?